Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the 360 Fascinating Conversations with Interesting People. And I'm your host, Tim Brahim. And it is my pleasure to bring into the podcast forum for this episode uh, someone who I've grown to know over the past eight or nine years on an intimate basis as a client and now as a friend and someone who I respect immensely. Caleb Legrand is a graduate of Bob Jones University with a degree in accounting, um, and he graduated in 2003. He began his career as a practicing accountant with Deloitte and later Dixon Hughes before entering into mortgage banking in 2006. Mortgage banking and helping clients make informed and educated choices is not only a passion of Caleb's, but I think something that is the benchmark of why he is so successful. And I think that you're going to really get a feel for that during the course of the the hour and 20 minutes or so that we spend together. His wife, Priscilla, and he have been married since 2003. Caleb is uh, the oldest of five kids growing up and is uh, a passionate fitness enthusiast and water skier, and he's super excited to start teaching his nephews how to water ski. If I take you back through memory lane a little bit, my personal experience with Caleb, um, he was a client of mine in the second group of Leadership 360, so back in 2013, I believe it was, um, and, and Caleb is a tremendous implementer and he implemented a lot of the things that, that we learned together in Costa Rica that we, we taught him as a coaching unit. Um, and he's really exploded his business. When I met Caleb back in 2013, he was doing between 15 and 18 loans a year, which were solid production numbers. Uh, but, but check out his numbers of late in 2020, which was of course a great year for everyone. Caleb did 707 loans of which 444 of those loans were purchases. In 2021, he did 651 loans of which 499 of those loans were purchases. Talk about growing like a hockey stick. Well, we're going to get into the, the depths of why it is that his business has exploded and been so consistently high now for several years. Uh, a couple of other statistics that I think are important. Uh, 376 of his Google reviews are five star. Um, and uh, 2,478 of his social survey reviews average 4.93. Uh, these are astonishing statistics. The level of customer service and customer satisfaction that Caleb and his team provide is just top notch. And we're going to break that down. We're going to get into the reasons for it. And without further ado, I, uh, I introduce you to Caleb LeGrand. What's up, Caleb? Hey, Tim, how are you? Good, man. Where are you at? You're at your, uh, your office, I see. I'm at the office here in South Carolina. Dressed spiffy as ever. <laughs> well, if you're going to pretend to be a banker, you need to look like one. Yeah, exactly. Now, you guys didn't uh, in the pre-call. You were telling me that you guys didn't do the 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 at-home work thing during the COVID pandemic. You uh, you pretty much stayed together as a team in the office. Yeah, most of it. I mean, we shut down for maybe the first week or two when things first rolled out. But our state didn't have as aggressive a lockdown as others. We were deemed essential services, so we kept the office open, following protocols and all that fun stuff, and. Really, we're here most of the time. I mean, you guys have always been tight as a team. How many people do you have on your team now? Uh, it's 13 total, including myself. Wow, man. That's like when when we first met, you had a team of maybe four, four including you. Is that right? I think it was five, including me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's grown a lot. It's grown a lot. Well, let's let's dive in, man. Take us back to the beginning. Um, you know, I said a little bit about you in the intro. Uh, but, you know, how long have you been in the business? What got you into it? You know, what made that transition from accounting to mortgage banking? And, um, 
And just take us through a brief history of the maturation of your growth in the business. So I got started in October of 06. So going into almost 17 years now. Honestly, I just stumbled into mortgage banking kind of, you know, butt backwards like most people do because I got out of school with an accounting degree, liked math, liked numbers, enjoyed that piece of it, but wasn't really finding fulfillment in the accounting side of things because it was very much a progression. So you're going to have to work for so many years before you go to the next level and things like that. So that wasn't super interesting. And when I got my first house, got my first mortgage, was talking with the mortgage broker as we went through. And he said, are you looking for a job? And I said, are you hiring? And literally started working there part-time for the first year, transitioned out of accounting into mortgage banking full-time and still trying to figure out what I want to do and become an adult and grow up. So when you first started, how long did it take for you to make your first hire? Like how long were you in the business before you, you, you hired an assistant or a processor or whatever you did? That would have been uh, 2000. Nine. So six years you were riding solo, huh? Yeah, I was riding solo. So Kelly, we actually were just talking about this because she just clocked over 11 years. So it was, I hired her in May of 09 was the first, and she was a processor slash loan officer assistant slash everything. It was just the two of us running and gunning as fast as we could to keep up with what was coming in. I, I got to the point where we had enough business coming in where I needed help. And she was an amazing first hire. Yeah, you know, I want to I want to unpack that in a little bit. Um, there's so many things that you and I see eye to eye on, um, which will kind of be very, very fun for me in this interview to just kind of banter back and forth on some things that we, I think, both believe to be truisms. And I know that one of the ones that you also believe in is longevity of team members is super important, right? You have somebody like Kelly that's been with you for 13, going on 14 years. That's invaluable, isn't it? Oh, it's, I mean, the intellectual capital that builds up and you think about all that brain knowledge that's been gather over the years and then you have continuity with clients so clients come back and go oh i worked with kelly last time or you know they they it's just that familiarity it builds that camaraderie both with the team with the client base with referral partners so i i that cannot be undervalued not at all right it, i mean for a lot of reasons not notwithstanding the fact that it just makes life so much easier on you in terms of your ability to have some freedom, because if, if your team members know your client base and vice versa intimately, then they don't necessarily need to talk to you as much. And, and they're, they're, you know, super comfortable just moving forward doing, you know, a repeat finance transaction without you even being in the office. Right. Most times. Yeah. Cool. So, so let's go back again. I kind of derailed us there. So first hires in 09, and then, and then you start growing it, you know, you know, basically I think when we met, which was in 2011, I believe you were doing, maybe it was 2012. I don't remember, but you're doing about 15 to 18 loans a month. And your team consisted of five people, including yourself. Um, then things just started to really take off. Didn't it? Tell us a little bit about that and kind of bring us up to date as to what your production numbers have been recently in the last couple of years. Uh, so we added, we kind of added in batches. So we built to a certain level and realized we needed additional help to take it to the next level. What it has been my truth so far has been every time we've added a partner to the team, we've usually experienced an increase in the growth because we have more capacity, can do a better job, better customer service, all that good stuff. So we added two or three people thereafter, integrated those new partners to the team, added another two or three people, integrated them. So the last batch of hires was in 2019. We added three people in 19, which takes us up to the current level of what we've got 13 partners. In terms of production, I mean, obviously 2020 and 2021 were blowout years. 
we did 707 loans in 2020. We did 650 loans in 21. We're very heavy purchase focus. So we've always maintained 60, 70, 80 plus percent purchase money. You know, so far year to date through May, we're having a little slower year just with rates having ticked up. We're 177 units through the end of May so far. And I mean, this year we're running like 95% purchase money. So it's the biggest swing for us was we moved from just general resale focus in probably, I want to say that was probably around 13 and 14 to going after large channel accounts with builders. And that was just really fortuitous with the lack of inventory, getting those preferred relationships allowed us to really grow and expand because then it becomes almost like an annuity. We stack up those future contracts, you know, the business you're bringing in, you know, the team size you need to have to support that and all that good stuff. So there's a, there's a sidebar question that I have for you about that, which is, it strikes me that if, if you're adding team members in batches, you know, three at a time, two at a time, stuff like that, you've built this team from, you know, 2009, it was a team of one to 2022. It's a, it's a team of 13. I mean, that's some pretty substantial growth. You've made some excellent hires. What are, what are a couple of important things that you think that listeners should be taking in consideration when evaluating a, a new hire? And what are some of the things you do to vet properly to make sure that you're not making that mistake of making a bad hire and then finding out six months later, you're back to ground zero and it's groundhog day and you're having to start all over again. I've been really blessed and fortunate on that aspect of hiring. So the best success I've had or best practices I would give most of the partners that are on the team have come as referrals from someone on the team. So we've only made two complete outside hires, meaning they didn't know anybody on the team. Everyone else was friend of a friend type of thing. So that's worked very well. And I firmly believe in the hire slow, fire fast. And thankfully we've only had over all the years, we've only had two team partners that rotated out. And, and it was truly one of those things where they sort of self-selected out. The rest of the team has stayed and we've had that continuity throughout the entire time. I'm a very firm believer in you disc every hire that you're going to hire and also do the strength finders. I think between those two things, those are key. And then our process would be if we have someone who we have an interest in and we need a position, the very first interaction is I'll just have a short phone conversation with them. You just kind of feel them out. But then we bring them in, we have a brunch with the team. So we're throwing you in the mix Here's all 13 of us. If you can handle that level of interaction right out of the gate, going in cold, you can probably handle anything else that's going to come up. So if that goes well, then we progress to more in-depth interviews where they're meeting myself, two or three members on the team, so on and so forth. We go through a couple of rounds of that to onboard somebody from the time we identify them to the time we actually bring them on the team and they start. It's about a 90-day process and that's intentional. You know, I, I want you to want to be here. If you don't want to be here, you're not going to stick when things get hectic and stressful. Cool. So, okay. So let's, let's, let me regress for just a moment for the listener that doesn't know what disc and strength finder is. I'll, I'll touch on that in some of the post coaching uh, commentary that I do at the end of these podcasts, but you know, disc is a personality assessment that is incredibly valuable and, and, and really getting an indication as to what the person's true strengths are and, and their blind spots and strengths finder. Uh, tell us a little bit more about strengths finder. Cause I'm not quite as familiar with, with that. I, I know, I know of it, but I, I don't know that much about product it. that I think kind of marries in well with the disc profile. I think the disc does a very good job of kind of identifying what makes up this person 
the strength finder I found has been a good complement to it because it kind of helps outline what are they going to be good at? What is their more predominant trait that may come forward? So those two things married together, I found give you a really accurate picture of what somebody may be and how they may show up, which depending on the role that you're hiring for, you may want someone who's going to be more aggressive, who's going to have that sales fire versus if we're looking more at processor support roles, I don't want them to be overly aggressive. I want them to be task focused, you know, empathetic, nurturing, because they're going to be handholding that client through the finish line type of thing. So I found those two pieces together in addition to you know, the face-to-face time with the team are invaluable to vetting hires and knock on wood. We've been very, very lucky that we've not really had any bad hires. Yeah. And I mean, that's where like the whole hire slow fire fast thing is so important. I mean, I referenced it before, but I mean, far too many times I've seen people make the mistake of hiring quickly and, and I've made this mistake. I actually made this mistake as recently as about a year and a half ago. I made a, a an abrupt hire and four months later, I was back to exactly where I was before, which was needing to find somebody to fill that spot, which is not fun. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of energy that goes into hiring someone. I, I like this notion of, so if I heard you correctly, you, you have a candidate and the first thing you do is you have a brunch and you invite them to the brunch and you see, like, you kind of throw them into the swimming pool. It's got to be a little bit intimidating to the person. They're meeting a whole team and like what if it they're interested? See that what I found is that takes away all the you know the hard shell because you go in an interview one on one and someone can kind of skate their way through that I think and put up you know, a false version of themselves. The benefit of dumping them with the entire team does two things. One, it's such a overstimulated environment because you've got thirteen people that work together closely. We all spend more time with our, with each other than we do with our spouses sometimes. So you got a group of people that's fairly close knit. You're coming into that as a sometimes complete stranger, or sometimes they know people in the group. So you see very quickly how they interact. And then that also takes the pressure off of me for having to fill the void. So I can actually sit back and watch how that person interacts. And then I've got 12 other partners on the team who are also seeing how this person interacts. So you've got 13 perspectives very quickly to go, do we invest any more time in moving forward with this or not? Because that's super low level. I mean, the first phone calls 20 minutes, just, Hey, how are you? What's going on? Tell me the background, yada, yada, yada. That next interview is, are you worthy or worth pursuing to pursue or go further? And if they are, then you get into the serious interviews where you really start peeling things apart, but you get a real, real sense of them in that first interview. The interviews take place after the, the cocktail party, the, the, yeah. the brunch. And, and, and we it. schedule the cocktail. We schedule that separately. So the first interaction is truly Come in, meet the team. You know, what we've typically done in the past is say, you know, maybe bring something that you're super passionate about and present it to us. So like Trent, when he came, he really loved sailing. He presented on sailing and sailboats. Jennifer was presenting on crafting. You know, Heather was on cooking. So I mean, it's just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and give us something that, you know, show us, show us your sales skills. Because whether you like it or not, we're all in sales. You know, it doesn't matter what role you fill, everyone's in sales. So they need to be able to interact with a large degree in different people with different backgrounds. If you can't talk to people, you're not going to make it in this business. That's, that's outstanding. It's, it's also, it's also putting them in a position where, you know, like you're getting a, you're getting an understanding of what they're passionate about and, and, and seeing how they communicate uh, in ways that wouldn't necessarily be so obvious, right? Like you're asking them to do something, but in the breath of them doing what you're asking them to do, you're learning a lot of valuable things about, you're, you're essentially interviewing them when they're presenting that one thing, even though they don't really realize it. I love how stealth that is. So um, next question is regards to your day-to-day. And what's not lost on me is that there are people who listen to these types of interviews and they hear somebody that's doing 700 loans 
and it can be so intimidating, right? Like, I, like if you're doing five loans a month right now, you're, you're going like, I don't even, I can't even fathom what the pathway is to get there. And obviously you were doing five loans a month at one point in time. And I was, doing, I was lucky to do one loan a month at one point in time. So, and your job description is continually refined over the years. So where is it at right now? Like what take us into the back door of Caleb Legrand's day at the office. Like what do you spend your time doing? I mean, I've been fortunate enough to move into a lot more of what I want to do, which is more the consulting side. That's the part that I really, really enjoy. So I think you have to start in the beginning the way you want to end. I think you need to develop those daily disciplines early because they'll facilitate what the end's going to be. So just to weave back into the hiring thing real fast, the reason that we've not really ever made a bad hire, because I firmly believe in capacity ahead of demand. So we've always looked to go, okay, once we get above 70, 80% of the current production level of the team, we start identifying where are we getting stuck and we start looking for that next position. That way we're not running around scrambling to go, oh my gosh, we got to hire somebody and we got to hire them now. So I think the same thing, you know, if you're starting out, you're doing one, two, three, five, seven, 10, whatever number of loans, develop those daily disciplines now and they will only scale as you continue to grow the practice. So I still start my day really early. I start at 4 a.m. So I'll get up, you know, do my devotions, morning meditation type of stuff. And then I'm usually going through emails, preparing the day. Any paperwork stuff is done at that time. Seven o'clock, I'll go to the gym, work out, come home, shower, change. I'll typically work from home for an hour or two in the mornings just to kind of get centered. And then when I get into the office, it's appointments and dealing with anything with the team for pretty much the rest of the day up until about seven o'clock. The day is really structured in the sense I've blocked out, I call it admin time. Like if I need time to go work on a project or focus, there's a couple of days a week that are blocked out for the morning because I'm a morning person. Then that way, when I come to the office, the rest of that time is free to deal with anything that may need attention or client appointments are the biggest thing. So I still do most of the consultations with the client on the front end. So uh, that was the question I was going to ask you. Um, do you have other loan originators on your team? And of those, say, 700 transactions that you did two years in a row, what percentage of those people would you estimate you actually talked to and you know quoted rates to and got them to say yes? Uh, we don't have any other loan officers. So I handled almost all 700 of those. So I do have what most would consider like loan officer assistants. So Sydney and Melissa and Heather all assist on the front end with doing aspects of it. I'm the one who's primarily structuring the loan and then handing it off for, here's the strategy, here's the blueprint, let's follow through with it. So keep in mind the 650 and the 707, you know, in that was about 200 something refis those years. That's a lot less work. It's just basically, here's your rate, here's your payment, let's go down the skids. The purchase money is where there's a lot more consultative work and structuring that loan more properly. So it's kind of a doctor nurse analogy, right? Like, so you're, you're the doctor that comes in prescribes um, and, and it's been refined over the years more and more to where um, less and less of the upfront process is your responsibility. It's been splintered to different people and you're basically coming in and, and, and educating, right? Like that's the main yeah, focus of what you do. I, mean, I call it, we call it a pre-application consultation or a pack and I'm doing truly the consult piece or the pitch, if you will, of, all right, client calls in, We've got the loan application. We've got supporting docs. And my time with you is to say, I reviewed your information. This is what we can approve you for. How do we best weave this loan into your long-term financial goals? I have some recommendations. You know, Tell me what's important to you here as we really tailor this loan to your specific needs. 
close that out, issue the approval letter. And that's really the vast majority of what I'm doing beyond interacting with our referral partners and our builder accounts, you know, making sure that we're keeping those folks happy, facilitating what they need from us and, and delivering on our commitments. How important is it in your estimation for a person in your position to have a strong opinion and to be willing to give advice to a client? I think it's everything. I really genuinely do. I think if you're going to move beyond being a rate hack, and, and we all make this journey. And so for me personally, when I first got into the business, you know, was in accounting, like, oh, I'm, I'm really savvy financially. And so I was talking with my dad and my dad was hitting me with all these really qu- tough questions. And we like, I don't know the answer to that. And he said, if you're going to be good, you need to be able to answer those questions. And so just really work to refine my craft to where you need to have an opinion that's worth people waiting for. So, you know, client calls in, it may be 24, 48 hours before we actually have that consult. So when I show up, it needs to be more than, okay, you wanted a 20% down mortgage. Here's your rate. Here's your payment. Do you have any questions? Because that's a waste of people's time. You know, you need to show up with it. Here's how we're going to make this make sense for you. Here's how we can weave this into your long-term financial goals. We do a lot of new construction. So it's also trying to project out what's the market and the economy going to be six, eight, 10, 12 months from now. And how do we best manage that debt between now and then before we actually really execute on something? So if you don't have an opinion of value or something worth waiting for, then you're no different than an online lender or a bank where it's just, here's your rate, here's your payment, have a nice day. I mean, that's being a mortgage advisor as opposed to just simply being someone who's a, a mortgage person. Yeah, as, an, as opposed to an order taker. Um, I, you know, there's a common denominator that that I'm seeing over and over in all, all of the people that we kind of hang out with. So Josh Metal gets up at four in the morning. Ryan Grant gets up at the four in the morning. Michael Shane's forever gotten up at four in the morning. I mean, these are, you know, and, and I can go on and on. You get up at four in the morning. And, you know, there's something I want to point out. First of all, it's not by accident that and all of the, the wisdoms, the religious wisdoms of, of our, of our time, that that magical hour is four in the morning, you know, priests get up and they pray at four in the morning, you know, yogis in India get up at four in the morning. There, there's something very special about that sacred quiet time before the sun has come up. Um, I've read and studied quite a bit about this. So it involves the, uh, the pineal gland, uh, which is a gland in the back of our skull. Uh, that's when the most melatonin is going through our, our our brain and we have the greatest mental acuity and clarity. I want you to to speak a little bit to that, that period of time. I would imagine that that time, that block of time has got to be pretty special for you in terms of getting a lot done, both on a personal and a professional level. Would you like to comment a little bit more on that? I, I just call it my magic hour. So I get more done before the world gets up around seven or eight o'clock than most people get done in their day. The thing that stuck with me the most out of that, there was a study, and I don't remember how long ago I read it, but they had studied you know, the Fortune 500 CEOs, and they had said, I'm happy in a day if I get an hour and a half of productive work done. And these are people who are paid multi, multi-millions. They run the biggest companies. You go like, what the heck? So I just figured, all right, if I can get my day structured where I can get a lot done, I, it allows me to be more present during the day when people are more awake. And, and can deal with anything that comes up that needs immediate attention because I've done all the prep work that needs to be done in, in advance of that. It allows me to be, re- be able to be reactive if something that needs my attention or to have the prime time that most clients want to meet between you know nine to five readily available. Of, okay, we can slot you in. That's what helps facilitate such a high production load because I'm able to fit in three or four appointments every single day if I need to. Yeah, and I think that like, 
also, I would have to imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's something really important about feeling accomplished, right? So like if we start, if we start off our day, you know, at nine o'clock or eight o'clock when the world is coming at us, we run a great risk of that day ending and us feeling very defeated because we've been reacting all day. And what you're doing is you're giving yourself an opportunity every day to have some winning time where no matter what happens, no matter what comes at you, you had those three or four hours to where nobody got to you because everybody was still sleeping and you got to get things taken care of that you really wanted to accomplish is that Very accurate much. for you I feel, and i feel good because i've already got my checklist has already got like maybe 20 or 40 percent of it done yeah walking into the day and now it's like okay what's left would mean i need to call people or deal with appointments or things that can be done during more traditional business hours cool so so what time do you end your day by the way because if you start so early do you, do you check out at like four or five o'clock or what time uh, you don't work so Typically nowadays, I mean, the last two years were just insane. So, I mean, it was super late hours and a more normal period of time. I try to stop around 630 and go home at that point in time. Time you go to bed. Uh, somewhere between 839. Got it. So you're still getting your seven hours in. That's cool. Okay. Very much so. I, I right, can't wait so, on much less than that. I was starting to worry about you there for a minute, man. I want to make sure you're getting enough sleep. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, if I only get like five or six hours, I'm, I'm not super awesome the next day. I need at least eight, man. I'm getting old. Uh, my body doesn't produce as much melatonin as yours. Okay. So let's talk about your business philosophy. What, what is your, your top business philosophy or mantra, if you will? Like, do you have one that you think is really important for people to understand? I think it's just provide value. So I'm very much a value oriented person myself. So that doesn't necessarily mean monetarily. When I'm personally going out to buy something or research something, I'm looking for either the best bang for the buck or you know best advice. It's just bring value. So same thing on the client side or the consultative side of the business is, is provide value and be able to meet a client where they're at. You know, it could be something as basic as someone who just needs help understanding credit to the far more sophisticated client who's got multiple businesses, multiple properties. They think they've been through this 9,000 times. And what I found in my experience is even those clients who've done this a thousand times, there's still opportunities to provide a high level of service and a high level of value with a strong financial opinion that they may not even have thought about. And so it's no different than being that financial advisor just through the lens of a mortgage saying, I'm going to help look at your finances. And you know, I'm someone at this stage in my career, I talk to each year somewhere in the ballpark of around 1300 people that want to borrow money, sometimes more, sometimes less. So I've gotten a lot of repetitions in to where I can see, hey, here's things that you may not have thought of because I've gotten to see what this looks like 20 years down the road of either validating your strategy, you're doing everything right, here's a couple things to think about, or this doesn't end well because I've seen what the outcome of this will be based upon interaction with other clients. Here's some things you may want to consider. So that experience of bringing that wide swath of looking at so many individual financial profiles really has been valuable. I've never had a client where we've ended a consult and they said, this was a complete and utter waste of my time. This was dumb. I'm never doing this again. They almost always end. This was extremely helpful. Thank you so much for pointing that out. I'm really glad we did this, even if there was reluctance going into it. So let's peel that back a little bit more because there's a theme that's starting to develop here. Adding value. You haven't necessarily used the term financial advisor, but that's absolutely what you're describing. You're willing to have an opinion. You're wanting to make sure that when you meet with someone that they leave that conversation, having value provided to them, a greater breadth of education. So what, 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 
what are the things that you've done over the years? I mean, you, you talk about the repetitions and I, I don't want to underestimate or, or even skirt past that. I mean, you talk to 1300 people a year, you're going to get damn good at your scripting. You're going to see so many scenarios. You're going to be that much more valuable, but there are two, two things that I would have to imagine that listeners might be going to like, number one is how do I get in front of 1300 people here? And obviously that didn't happen overnight. So I'd like to just have a little bit of an understanding of, What's transpired over the course of your career? If you could give us a um, a little bit of a synopsis of what took place to get you to a position to be in front of that many people. And secondly, and equally important, is what have you done over time to become so educated, to be able to be confident, to be that advisor to them? Do you study certain you know, literature, et cetera? I mean, if you can go into some depth on those two, that'd be great. I'll start with the second question because I feel like that's a little bit easier. I think it's it's just like anything else. You've got to invest in yourself. So I, when I first got into this industry, and you got to remember, I left what was considered a safe job. I was on track to make partner because I started out with the big four. If I stayed there 12 years, I would make partner. That's a very safe, very comfortable lifestyle. So you know, four years or five years into being accountant, I'm looking at my young wife and going, hey, I want to jump out of this and go into something that who the heck knows if it's going to work out. But I told her, I said, one of two things are going to happen. I'm either going to be the biggest success or the biggest failure in the mortgage industry. Time will tell which one of the two it is. And by the grace of God, so far, it's been a pretty good run. But when I first got in, I immediately went and sought out the CMPS information. That was incredibly helpful. That is something if you if you want to get a very strong financial base, it was that I was right in the heyday of loan toolbox. So your old product, that was invaluable for someone who's new, just going in and going, I've always tried to model successful people. You know, people have said over the years, success leave clues. And it's very true. And there's really not anything new under the sun. There's just variations of this may work differently for my market, my area, my practice versus what someone else does, but it's just a spin on what someone else is doing. So investing in yourself to get that knowledge. I mean, I read all the financial books, your life and whole life insurance was a big thing back at that time. And everybody was talking about it. So I went and got everything I could on that to understand it. Getting into financial advisors and picking their brain and going, what are you doing? How do these strategies work? If I'm talking to a client and they've got $400,000 and they're buying a $600,000 house and they want to put all the money down, what could you do differently with that? So just asking questions. I think you need to read broadly to have an exposure to a diversity of opinions. I think you need to be very careful on who you learn from and who you actually follow, because there's a lot of people that are just, just like the old gold rush days, they're just selling the shovels. They don't actually own the mine, run the mine, or ever done that. So I think you've got to really invest in yourself and invest in that financial opinion to really have a true understanding of that. Then to answer the first question, it didn't happen overnight. And so I've always looked at myself as more of an educator and a very process-based operator in the mortgage space, like there are thousands of people who are better salespeople than I am. Like I, I so had over the years worked at a couple of different companies and had a couple of different coworkers, super outgoing people, really friendly. You throw them in a room, they leave with 12 friends, six business cards and a couple of deals. I'm the guy who's kind of sitting in the corner of my drink going like, hmm, I need to go talk to somebody. But what has built is it's become that flywheel. So as you're adding value, going into every transaction, going, I'm here to help you and I want to do the best I can for you. And I'm going to work on my skills as a mortgage operator to up-level my opinion. And, and thankfully in my market, I don't have to be that much smarter. 
than a lot of people. So maybe that's partly why I've had such success just with where I'm located, because we are a little more blue collar than say like some of the white collar areas. So the level of financial intellect doesn't have to be like super esoteric. Like we're not getting into weird stuff that you would be like, I don't even know if I have an opinion on that. So that allows me to give a high level of value to those clients and then just builds on itself. And if you follow up with the disciplines, I'm going to follow up, I'm going to follow through, I'm going to do the things that we all know we need to do. It just compounds over time and you get a reputation. I'm also in a fairly small market. So we work within about a two hour radius of our office. And in that radius, there's only about 1.8 million people that are serviceable. So word spreads fast and allows us to become the you know, big fish, small pond. Well, hello, friends, and I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 Experience podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas, where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to theloanatlas.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.